0: All right, we're gonna study God's word together. Go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Psalms, chapter 85, if you would follow along as I read from God's word. Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave your people's guilt. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You turned from your burning anger. Return to us, God of our salvation and abandon your displeasure with us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your faithful love, Lord, give us your salvation. I will listen to what God will say. Surely the Lord will declare peace to his people, his faithful ones, and not let them go back to foolish ways. His salvation is very near, those who fear him so that glory may dwell in our land faithful love and truth will join together righteousness and peace will embrace truth will spring up from the earth and righteousness will look down from heaven also the lord will provide what is good and our land will yield its crops righteousness will go before him to prepare the way for his steps so verse six really captures the deepest longing of this psalm. Will you not revive us again? The revival spoken about in this passage is not a uh, sign on the front of a church building announcing revival services begin Tuesday night through Thursday night. Revival is not something that can be scheduled Revival is something a sovereign God does when he sovereignly wants to. It's at his divine discretion and prerogative. We, I heard somebody say this years ago, we can't make the wind blow. (laughs) Only the spirit of God can make the wind blow. But we can make sure our sails are hoisted so that should the wind blow, we will be carried along under its influence. That's our goal as a church is, is not to try to contrive wind wind makers, uh, programs that try to do that sort of thing by the muscle of ingenuity. No, we want to raise our sails so that if the Spirit comes in power and blows through town, we are pulled along with it. But, But I think there's more here in Psalm 85 because what I love is the writer's asking for it. The writer's not just asking for revival, but is actually anticipating that it will come, is is anticipating and expecting spiritual renewal to land on God's people. You know, so often in history, if you study the history of revivals around the world over the last couple thousand years, true revivals often have certain hallmarks, uh, common traits and features, right? So things like confession and worship and repentance, those things hang around places where true revival happens, you hear confession, you hear worship, you hear repentance. There's, a, there's often a mixture of two things that seem like they're almost contradictory. There's a sense of reverence and sorrow for sin with tremendous and profound rejoicing. So joy and reverence, contrition and rejoicing, a common feature of revivals is often the power of testimony. So John, Jonathan Edwards, who had front row seats for the Great Awakening, he said, it seems as if testimonies are the wings of revival. Which is his way of just saying, it's like God starts stirring something up in one place and then people go from that place and they're telling the stories of what God has done and it's like the spirit rides on the wings of testimony and it gives Uh, gives cause for faith to rise in other places. Now other people are yearning. Other people are hungry. Other people are anticipating and believing. And the Spirit rides on the testimony and moves in multiple places around the city or around the world. Before we're done, I'm gonna share a few thoughts about what what I saw at Asbury College last weekend. But scholars who work in these areas who focus their, their work on studying revival often will point out that revivals tend to happen when you have two sets of conditions that are um, existent at the same time. So the church is at a low ebb and at the same time there's great unrest in the culture. Oftentimes, when those two things coincide, you have conditions that are amiable for uh, the Spirit of God to come in. That's actually exactly what happens in the book of Ezekiel, when you have this famous imagery of revival. And what's going on? The people of God are at a low ebb. They're a valley of dry bones. They're depicted as a valley of dead bones. That's the imagery of the people of God. There's tremendous unrest. The people of God aren't even in Jerusalem. They're in exile. They're in Babylon. And it's in that environment that God tells Ezekiel, prophesy over the dead bones in the valley. And and as the word is preached and proclaimed and held high, the spirit of God blows through the valley and suddenly the bones come together and becomes a living army, vibrant in God. Even the best revivals, if you study revival history, there are always excesses. There are always things that onlookers can say, eh, I'm not so sure about that, I'm not so sure about that, right? You can, you can analyze the thing to death for sure, right? And I think as a result of that reality, that there are always excesses in revivals, there can be a temptation to insist. So the church, there can be this temptation for the church to insist that a move of God must be everything in order to be something. You know what I mean? So it, in other words, it has to check all the boxes or it can't check any of the boxes. It has to check all the boxes. So joyful, but not too joyful. Let's, let's make sure the joy is dialed down, not up to 10. Let's just dial the joy down a little bit, right? Or, or it should produce immediate fruit in all the areas that burden me the most. Right? So there are always tensions. I think to embrace revival, there's a couple ways we could look at this, and here's where the tension is. To embrace revival doesn't mean um, sacrifice biblical orthodoxy for emotional highs and miracle mania. Right? So that, that's not an option that we want to choose. But you know what's also wrongheaded? Assuming God's spirit only works through my tribe. It has to look the way I want it to look. It has to show the maturity of fruit that I insist needs to be there. Psalm 85 is talking about a surprising work of God that that blows through when nobody was asking. (laughs) It's just the Lord descends with great power. It's poetry charged with theology. It's poetry charged with a kind of theology that makes Christians both discerning and hungry, desirous, yearning and anticipating. We we read summary accounts of revivals in history like this one, which describe what happened in the 1640s in a little town, Kitterminster, England. When Richard Baxter arrived at Kitterminster, it had a population of about 3,000 who were reckless, ungodly, and content to remain that way. By the end of Baxter's stay, the entire community was miraculously transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Dr. Bates reported that, quote, the place before his coming was like a piece of dry and barren earth, but by the blessing of heaven upon his labor, the face of paradise appeared there. Baxter would write, quote, as you passed along the streets on the Sabbath morning, you might hear a hundred households singing psalms at their family worship. In a word, When I came to Kidderminster, there was only about one family in the whole street that worshiped God and called upon his name. When I left, there were some streets where not a family did not do so. Baxter called Kidderminster during those years a colony of heaven. What we see in Psalm 85 is the people of God looking back To God's faithful, mighty working in the past, so as to stir faith for Him to do it again in their day. And a desire to see it in the present with far reaching effects into the future. Psalm 85 is looking at all the time periods back there when God worked, today, because you've done it before, you can do it again with far reaching effects. Into the future. So, how do we hoist the sail? How do we ready ourselves and stir up a longing for a fresh work of God? Number one, recall. Recall. You see, verse one Lord, you showed favor. So, we're storytelling here. We're going back into history. You showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave your people's guilt. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury and you turned from your burning anger. It's a history lesson. He's recalling these things that God had done in the past. If you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, then you know that one of the biggest problems with God's people is they had spiritual amnesia. They they had such a short memory of what God had done for them. So there's this massive redemptive event in the Old Testament, right? It's called the Exodus. People of God for 400 plus years are enslaved under Pharaoh in Egypt. And and God rescues them from under the hand of Pharaoh. And the Egyptian army starts chasing them. And he puts the Egyptian army underwater. And then God leads them through the dark wilderness. How? GPS device is a column of fire. Right? So God is providing literally everything. Light in the darkness. Rescue from their enemies. Rescue and freedom from slavery. Bread falls from heaven. They walk outside their tents. There's dinner. It's just provided on a rake. Water gushes from rocks. They end up walking into the promised land, and all they had to do was scream, and the walls came tumbling down. God provided literally everything for them. Then they get into the promised land. They settle. They They get some elbow room, right? They got a fig tree in the backyard. Land is flowing with milk and honey they got the bumper sticker that says my son or daughter is an honor student at Jericho High right they're they're moving into the regular rhythm of things and the problem is they forgot they forgot the blessing and rescuing power of God that got them there in the first place they turned their backs on God because they forgot what broken chains underwater armies daily bread column of fire Walls came tumbling. They they forgot the stories of God's mighty deeds. The first sign of drifting from God is forgetting his rescuing power and mercy. That's why we want our Sunday gatherings to be steeped in the story of the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ. The massive redemptive event that we celebrate today is not the Exodus, not the first Exodus. It's the new and greater Joshua, the new and greater Moses, Jesus Christ who saved us from bondage to sin, who liberated all who trust in him. We don't want to have a short memory. That's one of the reasons why we had the Lord's Supper. Apostle Paul said under divine inspiration, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, you build this into your regular weekly gatherings, regular rhythms of worship gatherings so that you don't forget because we're so prone to forget. This is why the Apostle Paul would say to Corinth, I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. An author and a student of social work and how... how Society develops, a Christian sociologist named Christian Smith, several years ago, he did a lot of research and analysis on what's going on in, in the West, in religion and Christianity in the West, and he concluded that the problem that plagues us in the West is, mouthful, it's moralistic therapeutic deism. Again, that's a, that's a big term, but here's the idea. Basically, it holds the idea that God, sort of generically defined, generically understood, God stands ready to bless us in whatever ways we happen to ask him for, so let's get to asking. But what ends up happening is we do an end run around the gospel, we do an end run around Jesus and his cross and the reality of human sin and the judgment of God against human sin. We do an end run around all those unpleasant things to get to the blessing. And then the moment that we get the blessing, it's deism. It's a sort of God's hands are off, are off the situation. Friends, that's not revival. That's anti-revival. Understand, the vibrancy of our worship will be short-lived if it's not Christ-centered. You say that again. The vibrancy of our worship will be short-lived if it's not Christ-centered. So are you fixated, are we fixated on the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ? Because that's where true faith is born. That's where true revival happens. That's where burdens of guilt and shame are lifted off people's shoulders. It's right there when we're at ground zero, at the foot of the cross, amazed by the grace revealed in Jesus. I I love some of the opening words of Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. He writes... This book is written for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty, those running on fumes, those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a descending escalator. I would imagine in a room this size, that probably pinpoints where some of you are. Feel like I'm running up a descending escalator. Notice how verses one to three don't feature the primacy of human response, but the ultimacy of divine mercy. You see, verse one, you were favorable. You restored. Verse two, God, you forgave. You covered sin. Verse three, you withdrew wrath. You turned from your hot anger. If you are alive to God, it's because of something God did for you, to you, before you ever turned toward him in repentance, he had to turn toward you in grace. That's what starts the whole, God makes the first move. The initiative of grace is so evident in this text. When revival falls, the sound you hear is a people enthralled with God. This psalm is enamored with God, is dazzled by God and what he has done, his mighty deeds. Let me ask you, would you keep coming to church every Sunday if the main attraction every Sunday was just us rejoicing in the gospel? Planned by the Father from eternity past, accomplished by the Son and his living, dying, and rising, and brought into our experience by the Holy Spirit who sets it at your doorstep and makes it real. That, that's, the, that's the tremor underneath verses one to three, and that's the tremor that's felt in a church where true revival springs up. There is, though, there is a dark backdrop underneath Psalm 85, and that backdrop becomes more obvious when we move from a remembrance of the past to prayers for the present. So the second point is, after recall, is Pray pray. You see him praying. Return to us, verse 4, God of our salvation. Abandon your displeasure with us. Will you be angry with us forever? So there's pleading, there's petition, there's a sense of urgency here in the text. What becomes obvious in verse 4 is that the story of past grace that he just talked about in verses 1 to 3, that's not happening on the streets right now. What's going on right now is present apathy. That's why I'm saying you did some awesome things back there well, what's going on right now? Well, I look around and what I see is evidence of your displeasure, a sense that we're still a million miles away from God. The psalmist begins by saying, you forgave us and you restored us. What's that mean? I think it's referring to the Babylonian exile, the return from the Babylonian exile. You restored us. We're back. We're not hundreds of miles away by the Kibar River hanging our our harps on the willow trees like you see there in Psalm 137. No, we're home. We're back home. Temple's being erected and now the worship of the people's coming back. The problem is underneath Psalm 85 is there's a sense of, yeah, we returned from exile, but we brought exile with us. It's weird to live in Jerusalem and feel like we never left Babylon. In other words, the move back from Babylon didn't change their hearts, it just changed their zip code. It didn't revive them spiritually. And the psalmist cries out and says, we don't want to just change location. Change our hearts. Give us burning hearts. Return, Verse four, return to us. That phrase, return to us, could be translated literally, turn us. <laughs> what a big, audacious prayer that is. Get this, you you think about the business end of that. The the ultimate judgment we could possibly experience from God is for a sovereign God to refuse to interrupt the status quo. For for God to just say, if that's what you want, on you go. that's, That's the worst judgment. Romans chapter one describes God's judgment this way. It says three times, he gave them over he gave them over. He gave them over. It was God taking his hands of mercy off and letting fallen humanity run unhindered in the direction of their idols. And the psalmist is saying, Not here. Please, please don't let us run further and faster toward self destruction. Would you just turn us? Turn us. Stories of turning abound all over this room. Stories of turning is really the story that's at the heart of the gospel, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead and your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked. So there's a walking direction. You walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all, right, so now everybody's in it, previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive, turned you in his direction, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Listen, if you have a hard time believing in the possibility of revival, look no further than your own personal testimony. You were dead and he made you live. You were running for your idols and he straight up turned you. The psalmist doesn't merely pray, help us turn. He prays, turn us. That's, that's what we're gonna need. Act in sovereign grace and turn us. Rev- Do more than invite us, verse six, revive us. <laughs> revive us that your people may rejoice in you. This, this is, uh, these are not the words of a God who's locked outside. This is no deism construct. This is gospel-charged theism This features a God who has options. This features a God who breaks in on planet earth, who breaks into living rooms and college chapels and bedtime prayers and dark nights of the soul. And he just lifts people out of darkness, transfers them from one kingdom into another kingdom. I love the result of this reviving work of God. Verse six, you see it. Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? The upshot of this revival, the first sign that God revived us is joy. The rejoicing of God's people. Our friend Ray Ortland, you should consider reading his book, When God Comes to Church. It's it's heavy sledding at certain points. Uh, It's a long book, but uh, it it repays reflection. It's an outstanding book. He he points out that verse 6 answers five questions. I'll go through these very quickly. What is revival? What is revival? Revival is God reinvigorating sinners. Revival is God visiting his wayward people with with reviving mercy. Second, who needs it? That question is answered in this passage. God's people need it. The text, so that, revive us so that what? Your people may rejoice in you. God's people need reviving on a regular basis. Laodicean church, Jesus writes letters to all kinds of churches in the book of Revelation and he says, I overheard you saying when you were gathered together, Laodicean church, you said, I need nothing and nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> you think you're rich and you have everything you need and he says, but you're poor, blind, miserable and naked. You can do nothing apart from grace. There are churches who in effect say, I need nothing. And the point is, that can't be us. It better not be us. It can't be us. Who's the reviver? That question is answered. God alone. God is the one who revives his people. I love what Ray Ortlund says. He says, the most important thing about your future is not what you have and who you are, but what God has and who he is. <laughs> Isn't that good? Another question that's answered in verse 6 is, what's the impact of revival the answer joy a new outlook so there's there's new energy for obedience to him and then the fifth question that's answered is what are our chances at seeing this and the answer is our chances are very very good will you you see how the question is even framed will you not revive what's that imply that the psalmist thinks the psalmist is saying i know the answer You certainly will. I'm just asking it out loud to stir my own faith. Will you not revive? It's the kind of God that you are. we got stories throughout our whole past of you doing this for your people. This request, will you not revive us? It's filled with hope and expectation. And there's really a challenge on the other side of it. It goes something like this. If you don't believe personal, national, even global revival is possible, you have forgotten the power of God. Confession. So often, um, I I pray prayers that that match the normal things that I see in life. I find myself praying small, contracted, safe prayers rather than big, audacious, faith-filled, hopeful prayers. I pray in keeping with the normal patterns. And what are the normal patterns? What do I normally see when I got my eyes open walking through the world? What I normally see is people who are running from God keep running. People who are drinking from broken cisterns that don't satisfy keep hitting those cisterns day after day after day, even though it's not satisfying. They keep going there over and over. That's what I normally see. People inoculated to the gospel yawn their way through worship all over this town. Singing life-changing truths with cold, unawakened, unresponsive hearts. That's what I normally see. But what if God said, enough? That's, that's what Psalm 85 is asking for. What if God said, not anymore. I'm not going to suffer myself to be resisted any longer. Today, nominalism starts to die right, no longer will you run after that which can't satisfy, no longer will you live in despair, no longer will I permit the accuser to whisper lies in your ears and you keep believing it, not, not, that was yesterday, not today, that's, that's the anticipation of Psalm 85, say that thing, say that word enough, God, say it over us, when revival falls, the sound you hear is a people convinced that God is able that God is able, not only that God is able, but that God is inclined, (laughs) that he is able and that he is willing, this this revival psalm is so hope-filled, not just for a corporate sense, but for personal, spiritual renewal, which some of us need so desperately. You You know what, there's a sense in which the God that we meet in Psalm 85 is the God who never looks at your life and says, you know what, that was the last time I'm gonna put you back together. Not Psalm 85, he says, I believe you would do it again. We had a time of prayer at the end of our service last week. You just wouldn't believe the stories that I've already been hearing this past week of new beginnings that started all over this room. Couldn't see it with the naked eye necessarily, but just testimonies rolling in, people emailing me, people finding me after service and just saying, here's something that God did. People, believers stood up around me, they put their hand on my back and they prayed and God was doing stuff in my heart. I'm believing him in new ways. You might think of this passage as an exhortation with a simple rhyme. Recall, pray, trust, and obey. That's how we hoist the sail. Recall, pray, trust, and obey. You hear this trust in verse eight? All the way through. Just let those words leap off the page. I will listen. The Lord will speak. He will declare peace. Salvation is near. Truth will spring up. The Lord will provide what is good. There's just trust all over these verses. There's burgeoning faith all over these verses. But it's not just, it's not just believing. It's not just faith. There's repentance too. There's also this word about not going back to our foolish ways. There's a closing the back door so we don't go running back toward apostasy. In other words, whatever this reviving work of God is, it's not something that makes you passive. One of the classic passages about God coming down in revival is found in the book of Isaiah chapter 64 where he says, oh, Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might shake at the presence of of your glory. I think these remarks about that text are really helpful. The prophet in Isaiah 64 envisions God taking the sky, which he has spread out like a curtain, taking that cosmic veil which hides him from our view, grabbing it in his strong hands, ripping it apart from top to bottom and stepping down into our world. It's a thought to make every believer tremble with joy But the prophet is not thinking of a literal earthquake. The mountains symbolize long-established, well-positioned, difficult-to-remove resistance to God. That's the world we live in. And that's what the church cannot change by her own efforts and programs and good intentions. But the Lord's presence changes everything. The evil that we cannot budge is to God like mere twigs before a fire or water set to boil. It has no power to resist. If that's true revival, it begs the question, how bad do you want it? How much eagerness is there in our hearts for that kind of move of God? A few things that struck me when we visited Asbury College So I had heard mixed reports about whether the things that were happening up at Asbury College were of God or not of God or to be suspected or to be embraced and so we made a spontaneous call because we roll like that, we're empty nesters now, we can do stuff like that, right? Uh, So we made a spontaneous call, we drove up there and we got there late at night and we stood in line for almost a couple of hours and finally got inside. But uh, as we're walking onto the campus, And I see the line coming out of the main chapel building there and it just goes on for a long way. The very first thing that I heard coming out of the speakers, they were projecting outside what was going on inside. The very first thing I heard as we walked onto campus were someone praying from the front that we as a generation would, quote, rid ourselves of bondage to pornography. That was the first sound I heard. And then I'm walking to the back of the line, which is way back there, and I'm walking, and I see a young African-American man, maybe 30 years old, he had his baby girl he was holding, and he was holding his phone, and he was FaceTime-living. I don't know how many people were on the other side of his FaceTime live, but I know what they were hearing because I jotted it down as fast as I could. He said, God's word says he's patient, not willing that any perish, but that you would repent. All can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. God is moving, follow him by repentance. And I thought, if that's the sound of what's going on inside, I am heartened and encouraged. <laughs> Standing in line, sub-30 degree temperatures, people in the line just started spontaneously singing songs of worship, started spontaneously praying for the people next to them, meeting the people next to them, praying together. Nobody was leading. Nobody was asking. It was just grassroots thirst first thing we got inside finally after being outside for a long time took 20 minutes for my southern toes to thaw got in there sat down and and someone got up front and said what we want to see is a work of God that's grounded in the word of God and he read Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And he said, so we're going to just take a few moments and let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. Here's how we're going to do it. One by one, not chaos, one by one, if the spirit prompts you to read something from God's word, you stand up and make it nice and loud. We don't have microphones. Make it nice and loud so everybody can hear you. And after you read that scripture, I'll say that's the word of God and we'll all say we believe it. I tried to jot the scriptures down as fast as I could. Romans 8:28, and then holiness befits your house and then be imitators of God and walk in love and then if you obey and carefully follow there will be blessings and then Jesus exalted and every knee bowing in Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 and then Malachi 2 the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings 1 Timothy 1 6 Romans 12 1 and 2 present your bodies living sacrifices and don't be conformed to the image of the world Psalm 119 verse 9 revive me that I may not forget your law and then they started shouting as somebody read your sons and daughters from the book of Joel in Acts chapter 2 your sons and daughters will prophesy and then God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance and then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13 and we were just one after another this is God's word we believe it this is God's word we believe it. I'm just this room full of people seeking to anchor their lives in the word of God and then he said after all of that He said, we want there to be a period of silence because our goal and our prayer has been that this movement would be marked by his word, radical humility. And he said, silence, quote, helps us to get low before God. And so what followed all that noise and shouts and scripture is just pin-drop silence for five minutes. And then... We stood, and the rejoicing began. And you should have heard the sound of the singing of the room, and there were no prompts, there were no words on this. We just had to learn these songs, and there were, nobody was prompting it, right? Just students up front. And I looked around on a few different occasions in this room, I turned a full circle, and what I noticed is none None of these students had a phone out. The only people who had a phone out were fogies like me. Like me, and uh, yeah, he's 50-ish, like me. Uh, She's, you know, like, their parents' generation were trying to capture a little bit of this, but it was just us. They were there, and they were not, they had no interest in capturing this for Instagram or for the watching world. They were here. It's time to sing. It's time to make some noise and rejoice in our God, it was, it was stunning. Psalm 85, verse six, revive us so that we may rejoice. When revival falls, the sound you hear is religion replaced by unbounded rejoicing. Yeah, there's another Psalm that I love, that's about revival, and it's Psalm 126, and it shares so many themes with Psalm 85. Here's what Psalm 126 says. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, here's the impact. When he did that, we were like those who dream. It was so good, it was like we were dreaming. Our mouths were filled with laughter then and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, so the world was watching in at the windowpane, and the nation started saying, the Lord is doing great things for them. And then it becomes personal. The Lord had done great things for us. We were joyful. If God is moving among young people in this country, who wouldn't welcome an infusion of joy that replaces heavy spirits? Just look at the generation coming behind us and how much heavy of soul sorrow there is one more observation that, that was fun is so standing in the line, there's this, there's this man and I can see him about every 40 feet he stops and gives a spiel. You know, he's, he's got this thing he's supposed to say as the volunteer. And once he got closer, I could overhear that he's basically just saying, I know it's cold out here, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and he's saying, uh, if you wanna be warm, and you want to be a part of this, we've got alternate locations just across. He pointed to a chapel across the street. He said it's simulcasting into that room. There's other places as well. And he said, and by the way, if you just decide to stay here, we've got water bottles right over there. That truck's been pulled up, so go grab yourself a water. That's the spiel. He just keeps giving it over and over and over, this this little speech. And and after he gave us the speech, I said, man, can I ask you a question? Um, Tell me why you're here. I said, do you, uh, do you work, are you on the faculty of Asbury College? Um, he said, no, no. And I said, do your kids go to Asbury College? And he said, no. And I said, then what are you doing freezing out here <laughs> with all of us volunteering for, for hours doing this? And he said, I've prayed for a move of God that affects young people. He said, I've got two teenage daughters and I've been praying for this day. And he said, so the least thing I can do is walk up and, up and down this line and give people bottles of water so they can make their way inside and see what God seems to be starting. He said, I prayed for God to grab their hearts and it seems like that's what's going on here. I got a picture. There he is. And you can see the joy. I'm about to go inside. So this is after a couple of hours of being out there And he looked like that the whole night. I mean, this guy's just given the worst spiel you could possibly be asked to volunteer to give. And he's just beaming all night long. Why? Because he longs for this. Ray Ortland shared a testimony about what happened in his own life in 1970. And he said, I was a senior in college and I went home for spring break. And he said, it was during the Jesus movement. And here's what he said what happened, the fruit of that. He said, I saw the Lord come down and change the subject on the streets of Los Angeles to Jesus Christ. (laughs) And the prayer of my life, he said, is to see it again. If spiritual renewal began sweeping through Birmingham, what if our first response wasn't to analyze it to death? What if our first response was recall? Pray, trust, and obey. What if any encouraging signs that we happen to see became a cause for us to pray for more, for more of that, for deeper that, right? We we don't need some new initiative as if that would trigger revival. What we need is renewed confidence in the power of God's spirit working through the gospel. That's how you and me hoist the sail and we see what happens next. That's his prerogative. But I don't want to see it go by. Would God grant us a heart that anticipates his move?